0: You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Well, we've been studying through the three angels' messages found in Revelation chapter 14. Let me just give you a little recap. We Sabbath morning, we looked at the second coming of Jesus, which is the last half of chapter 14. We then continued to talk about the 144,000, which is the first few verses of Revelation 14. We then spoke about the everlasting gospel, which is part of the first angel's message. Uh, Last night, we were talking about, Fear God, give glory to Him, the hour of His judgment has come. And we spent some time talking about the judgment Now, there is still a line or two in the um, first angel's message that we're going to finish up this evening, and then we're going to start the second angel's message. There was too much in the first angel to get it all done in one session, so we've kind of divided it up a little bit, but our prime focus this evening is going to be on the second angel's message that we find there in Revelation 14. So let's begin then where we left off last night. We're in verse 7 of Revelation 14. It says, saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him, the hour of his judgment has come. And here's the part where we stopped. And worship him that made. Worship the creator. The duty to worship God is based upon the fact that he is the creator and that to him all other beings owe their existence. The Bible is clear on this. In Psalms 95 verse 6, it says, Oh, come, let us worship God. And bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So God is worthy of praise. He is worthy of worship because He is our Creator. He's the one that made us. He's the one that sustains us. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, not only speaking about human beings, but all creation. It says, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and by your will they exist, and they were created. So all creation owes their worship to God because he has made them. Now what's interesting to note is that when the first angel's message was being proclaimed, calling people around the world to worship the creator, this was first proclaimed in early 1841, 40, 41, 42, and kind of culminated in 44, 1844 and on. It's interesting that Satan at the same time flooded the world with an anti-creation, anti-Sabbath, and anti-judgment message through the writings of Charles Darwin. It's interesting to note that he finished his handwritten copy of Origin of the Species in 1844. Very significant year. Now, the book was published several years later, but he had all of his ideas together in that important year, 1844. Now, if um, we evolved by random chance... Number one, God is not the creator. There's no need to worship him. Number two, the Sabbath is meaningless. No need to keep it. And the judgment won't happen, so you don't need to obey. So when the first angel's message began to be preached and proclaimed, fear God, giving glory, the hour of his judgment has come, worship him. The devil had a counterfeit message that has spread around the world And he's one of the greatest impacts, or one of the greatest challenges to Bible truth is the idea that there is no God or that he is not the creator. And that, of course, has been taught in our schools and in various countries around the world. Psalm 14, verse 1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And of course, that's what's happening in our world today. Now, Verse 7 says, worship him that made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. Now, the last part of verse 7 is a quote from one of the Ten Commandments. Which commandment? It's the Fourth Commandment, the Sabbath Commandment. Now, the first angel's message calls mankind to worship God as the Creator by quoting from the Fourth Commandment. As a result, a group of people are presented in Revelation 14, verse 12, who keep the commandments of God and they have the faith of Jesus. So worshiping God, recognizing that he is the creator, calls for us to recognize the sign that he has given us that he is the creator, and that is the Sabbath. Of course, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you should do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle nor your stranger that is within your gates. Notice this part. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So there's the portion of the fourth commandment that is actually quoted by the first angel in Revelation chapter 14. But I want you to notice the angel of Revelation 14 quotes from this fourth commandment, but there is a slight change in the way that he quotes it. So the first angel says, fear God, give him glory, the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him that made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and then the first angel says, and the fountains of water. Notice in the fourth commandment it says, the Lord who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in it. Why is there a difference between the fourth commandment and the first angel's message when quoting this particular passage? I think there is a certain importance about it. For example, here you see it Exodus chapter 20 verse 11, that's the Sabbath commandment, the one who made the earth, the sea, he- the heavens, the earth, the sea and all that is in them. Uh, Revelation 14:6, worship him that made the heavens, the earth, the sea and the fountains of water. Why the fountains of water? Now, where in the Bible do we read about the fountains of water or the fountains of the deep? Is there any passage that talks about that in the Old Testament? Well, yes, there is a very significant passage. And here you find it in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 11. It says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. What event is being described here in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11? It's the flood. Now, that's important. Why does the first angel say that we need to worship the Creator and somehow connects the flood to the first angel's message? I think it's very significant. Remember, what message was coming around at that same time around 1844? Well, it's Charles Darwin and the idea of natural selection and evolution. How does that tie into the flood? Now, here is something interesting. You can see there a picture of the origin of the species. It says, One of Darwin's chief difficulties in making converts to his new view, this is after he began to publish his writings, was convincing the skeptical public that there had been enough time since the advent of life, according to him, on earth for the slow process of natural selection to have produced the plants and the animals that they saw around them. So he had a problem when he came up with this idea. People would look at the world and they'd see the diversity, they'd see the animals, the plants, and uh, they realized that it must take a number of, you know, lifetimes for anything to change slightly. And, you know, there's there's something to what we call microevolution. I think that's pretty evident. But, of course, jumping species, there's no... There's no biological evidence that that happens. Nevertheless, he had to convince people that the earth had to be around for a very long time in order for his theory of evolution to actually gain some traction in the public. So how did he do that? Well, to address this concern, Darwin advocated the ideas of a geologist by the name of Charles Lyell, pointing to the slow pace of erosion and sedimentary deposits as evidence of incomprehensibly vast periods of geological time, somewhere between 150 and 300 million years. So Darwin said, well, if you look at the various strata of the layers of the rock, the sediments, and you kind of look at erosion, deposits, then you calculate and you say, well, the earth is very, very old, therefore evolution is possible because we have enough time. But there is a huge problem with that type of logic. And we're going to go actually to the American Geological Institute, and they're going to tell us what the problem is. This is uh, published by them, uh, page 677. Here is what it says. The fundamental principle or doctrine, another word for doctrine is teaching, that uh, geological processes and natural laws now operating to modify the earth's crust have acted in the same regular manner with essentially the same intensity throughout the geological time. And that the past geological events can be explained by phenomena and forces observable today. The classical concept that the present is the key to the past. Now, do you see the problem with with their idea, with their doctrine, with their teaching? They say that everything that we see today has happened the same in the past. So the same rate of erosion that's observed in the world today, the same type of buildup of sediments... It's always been the same rate, been happening at the same time. And so if you count the layers of rock, you can kind of extrapolate how old the world is. But there is something that they refuse to acknowledge. And that is that the fountains of the great deep broke open. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 says, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. You see, the flood answers the questions of these various layering that you see around the world. I visited the Grand Canyon, I suppose some of you have, and when you stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon look down into this massive crevice, it looks as though a... Sudden rush of water came flowing down in a very short period of time and carved out that massive canyon. You look at that tiny little river down in the bottom of the canyon, you think, How could that small river have carved out something this big? It needed something really big. There needed to be a lot of water to explain all of these natural things that we see. I'm by no means a geologist, but I have flown a couple of times and uh, flying across some of the western states like. Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico. It doesn't take much to look out of the window, and when you're flying up above and you look down on the landscape and you look at the formation of the hills, it looks as though you're looking down into a stream, and you know the way the the sand kind of forms little bubbles or, or little hills in the stream, little ripples? That's kind of what you're looking at when you look down on the landscape of some of these western states. It's it's almost obvious that there was a lot of water covering the continent at some time. Matter of fact, covering the world. So at a time when evolution was being pushed and the first angel's message was being preached, the answer to Darwin's ideas about the long ages of the earth was incorporated in the very first angel's message. That's why the angel says, the one who made the fountains of the great deep. In other words, God is reminding us you didn't make yourself, you didn't evolve, I am the one that made you. I'm the one that brought judgment upon the antediluvian world. I brought the flood, but I am the creator. The answer to what was being pushed forward at that time is found in the first angel's message. Now, Jane Andrews, one of those early Adventist founders in the book, The History of the Sabbath, had this to say about the importance of the Sabbath. He says, the importance of the Sabbath as a memorial of creation is that it keeps ever present the true reason why we worship God or why worship is due, because he, God, is the creator and we are his creatures. The Sabbath, therefore, lies at the very foundation of divine worship, for it teaches the great truth in the most impressive manner, and no other institution does this. So the weekly Sabbath is a continual reminder to us that God is our creator. We didn't make ourselves. He is worthy of worship. And not only does the Sabbath point us back to the fact that God is the creator in the beginning, but it is a reminder to us every week that he is still the creator. He still has creative power to transform us and make us the kind of people that he wants us to be. That creative power of God is still active in the hearts and the lives of those who are surrendered to him. So the Sabbath points back to creation, but it's also a reminder of redemption and the work that Christ wants to do for us. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. On the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. What are the three things God did? He blessed the Sabbath, he sanctified it, because in it he rested from all the work which God had created and made. To bless means to speak well of. To sanctify means to set apart. To rest is to establish a memorial. So God, in setting aside the Sabbath, gives a blessing, a memorial, a reminder to us that He is the Creator and we are His creatures. The fact that God is the Creator is the foundation of all true worship. It gives meaning and direction and purpose in life. In the crisis soon to come, the inhabitants of the earth will be called upon to make their choice between obedience to the law of God, and especially the Sabbath, or obedience to the traditions of men. The choice will have to be made. Are we going to stand upon God's commandments, or are we going to go along with the popular theories that are being taught? And that time, I believe, is quickly coming. Okay, well, let's take a look then at the second angel's message, beginning in verse 8. It says, and another angel followed, saying... Now, I asked a question last night. Do you remember the question? Why does the first angel have a loud voice and the third angel have a loud voice? But you notice here in verse 8, it simply says, another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Where is the loud voice? Why does the first angel have a loud voice and the third angel have a loud voice? Well, when you think about the three angels' messages, not only do they represent our message as a whole that has to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, but the three angels' messages also represent three phases of the Advent movement. For example, when was the message first proclaimed, fear God, give glory to him, the hour of his judgment has come, worship the creator. When was that message, that judgment hour message, first proclaimed? Around 1844 and thereafter. Was that message concerning the soon coming of Jesus and the judgment hour, was that message loudly proclaimed? Yes, it was, not only here in North America, but there were those all around the world that were talking about the soon coming of Jesus and a judgment message going to the world. Yes, the first angel's message was loudly proclaimed. And if we look at the third angel's message, that again says with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast or his image, or receives his mark in the foid or on the hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, does anyone have the mark of the beast today? Not yet. Not yet. Not until there are certain legislations being passed and we are called to make a stand on Bible truth, on the commandments, then the mark of the beast becomes an issue. you got the seal of God for the righteous, you got the mark of the beast for those who have rejected God's commandments. So even though we preach the third angel's message, we recognize that the third angel's message has a special future application. Are you with me? So if the first angel's message has this historic application, and the third angel's message has yet a special future application, where do you suppose that puts us today? Ah, so maybe that's why the second angel doesn't have a loud voice. Because you see, to preach the message that Babylon is fallen, is fallen, is not a popular message, especially today. Especially when we see within the Christian realm, this ecumenical movement to have a group of people stand upon the truths of the Bible and say, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That's not a popular message. Now the message is going, but it's not going with the power that it should. And it's for that reason that you find the fourth angel in Revelation chapter 18 that really says the same thing as the second angel with a few more details, but this time he says with a mighty loud voice, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Now we're going to study the fourth angel's message on Thursday evening, so we'll get to that one in Revelation 18. But the point that I want us to note is that the second angel's message, even though it is very important it's not proclaimed as loudly as it should. And friends, that's not an excuse for us not to do the work God has called us to do. You see, there's a parable that talks about this in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus told a parable about the ten virgins, the maidens, and they went out to meet the bridegroom. They were at Venice. They were waiting for the second coming of Christ. Verse 5 says, But while the bridegroom Jesus delayed, they all slumbered and slept. That's the second angel time period. We've been talking about Jesus coming for more than 150 years. There's a tendency for us to let down our God, to become spiritually lukewarm or Laodicean. But then it's verse 6 says, But at midnight the cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom comes, go ye out to meet him. And that cry is still to be given. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And then they proclaim with a mighty strong voice, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. So the church today is in a spiritually lukewarm condition. Of course, Revelation talks about this in chapter three. Yet the message must be given with a loud voice. Thus, Revelation 18, we see the fourth angel. And after these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was illuminated with his glory. Who do these angels represent? Who do the angels represent? Represents the church, represents God's people. Notice here that this fourth angel of the church, it says it's illuminated with the glory of God. And the reason for that is because we have the latter rain that's falling at that time. Verse 2 says, and he cries mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. How many times does Babylon fall? Babylon is fallen, is? Fallen. We're going to come back to that. And has become the dwelling place of demons, the presence of every foul spirit, the cage of every unclean and hated bird. For all nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxuries, in verse four, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, "Come out of her, my people, lest you share her sins and lest you receive of her place. It's important to note that Jesus has people in Babylon. And in order for that voice from heaven, which is the voice of Jesus, to call his people to come out of religious confusion, a message must be given with a loud voice, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. You understand? So when the church proclaims the message, and the message is being presented from the word of God, the Holy Spirit is able to convict the heart of the hearer, and Jesus is able to call them out of religious confusion. There's a work that we as a church have to do in proclaiming the three angels' messages. Now, as we mentioned, it says this message is Babylon is fallen, is fallen. The literal city of Babylon, of course, was already largely desolate and ruined in John's day when he wrote this. As with so many other terms and expressions in Revelation, the significance of this name, Babylon, is symbolic. The designation mystery Babylon tells us it's symbolic. And at verse chapter 17, verse 5, specifically it identifies the name as figurative. So let's see what do we learn in the Bible about the name Babylon. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 19. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty that Chaldea's pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So we're not talking about the literal city of Babylon here, obviously, but we're talking about what it symbolizes. In Babylonian, the name Bob Ul, or Babel, or Babylon, meant gate of the gods. But the Hebrews associated with Balal, a word meaning to confuse. Babylon was founded by Nimrod, and from its very beginning, it represents disbelief and rebellion against God. The prophet Isaiah identifies Lucifer as the invisible king behind this power of Babylon. Isaiah chapter 14 verse 4 says, Take up this prophet against the king of Babylon and say, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? So you've got a city in the Old Testament called Babylon. It represents those who are opposed to God and opposed to his truth. Genesis chapter 11 verse 9, Therefore the name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth, and from the Lord scattered them abroad over all of the face of the earth. So Babylon means confusion, it means opposition to the truth, it represents Satan's dominion and Satan's kingdom. Now the Old Testament has been called a tale of two cities. You've got Jerusalem and you've got Babylon. Both appear early in the Bible and both stand in sharp contrast throughout the whole of the Old Testament period. Satan designed to make Babylon the center and agency to secure control over the human race even as God purposed to work through Jerusalem. These two cities represent two principles that are at war in our world. So in the book of Revelation, you've got Babylon, you've got Jerusalem. Jerusalem symbolizes the home of true religion. It is God-dependent. It's the place of God and His people. And it is the fountain of truth. That's what Jerusalem symbolizes. Babylon, on the other hand, is a melting pot of false religion. It is self-dependent. It is the enemy of God and his people. It is the fountain of errors filled with lies. So that's Babylon. Two cities, two powers opposed in this great controversy. Now notice the statement that comes to us from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 73. Cain and Abel represent two classes that will exist in the world till the close of time. In one sense, Cain represents Babylon, and Abel can represent Jerusalem. One class avails themselves of the appointed sacrifice for sin. The other ventures to depend upon their own merits. The class of worshipers who follow the example of Cain includes by far the greater portion of the world. For nearly every false religion has been based upon the same principle that man can depend upon his own efforts salvation. The one is salvation by works. The other is salvation by faith. Two systems that we see throughout Bible history. Now, in the Bible, talking about Babylon, Babylon is the name given to a woman, and a woman in Bible prophecy represents what? A church. A pure woman symbolizes the true church. A corrupt woman symbolizes a false church. Now, we're familiar with this. If we look in Revelation 12, verse 1, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. Now, who does the sun here represent? The woman is clothed with the sun. Who's the sun? Jesus. The church is to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. It says she stands upon the moon with the moon under her feet. Now, where do we find the clearest reflection of Jesus today? It's in his word. What does the church need to stand upon? The word of God. The word of God is a reflection of Jesus. And it says, on her head is a garland of 12 stars. Remember the number 12 represents the church. Here in this case, it represents the leadership of the church. In the Old Testament times, it might be the 12 tribes. In the New Testament time, it's the apostles. So that number 12 is connected with the church. Now that's the true church. And of course, if you study through Revelation 12, you can see how the dragon attacks the church. And finally, you find in verse 17, the remnant who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Now, the other woman that's described in Revelation 17 is interesting. Verse 3, and he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting upon a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having how many heads? Seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, those are royal colors, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. She's very wealthy, having in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations of the filthiness of her fornication. And then it tells us in verse five, and on her forehead the name was written Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations Of the earth. So it's interesting to note two women described in Revelation. The one is God's true church, the one is an apostate church, a church that has fallen from the truths of God's word. The apostate church persecutes the true church just as the dragon persecuted the true church. What else is interesting is that her name, written on her forehead, it says she's the mother of harlots. So the mother church has daughter churches. Bear that in mind. We'll see how that comes together here in just a moment. Now, the church is to be married to Christ, but when she leaves her allegiance to Jesus and forms an alliance with a political or a secular power, she is guilty of committing spiritual fornication. The fornication of Babylon here refers to the church looking to the state to enforce her teachings and decrees. The Bible describes this coalition of church and state at the end as a great threefold union between the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Now we spoke in our earlier presentation about numbers in Revelation and their significance. What is the number 3 representing in Bible prophecy? It represents the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here we find a union of three powers. This is the counterfeit trinity in the last days you got the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Now, who does the dragon represent here in this passage? Who's the dragon? Well, Revelation 12 tells us that the dragon is Satan. The dragon not only represents Satan, but it also represents spiritualism. Who does the beast power represent? Well, we know from our study of Bible prophecy, especially Revelation chapter 13, that the beast power spoken of here is the Roman power, or the papal power, the papacy. And who does the false prophet represent? Well, before I tell you who the false prophet is, I want you to notice you've got the dragon, the beast, the false prophet. Whose position in the Godhead does the devil try to usurp? Lucifer said, I will ascend above the heights of the stars. I shall be like who? The most high. Who's the devil going for? He's trying to usurp the position of God the Father. Whose position does the beast power try to usurp? The official title, Vicarius Filii Dei, Vicar of the Son of God. Now, the amazing thing here is that there are so many parallels. It's amazing. How long was Christ's public ministry before Jesus received a deadly wound? Three and a half days, but. The deadly wound was healed, and Jesus rose from the dead. So the beast power rules for 12,60 years, or three and a half prophetic years. The beast power receives a deadly wound, but the Bible says that the beast power, the wound is healed, and all the world follows the beast. According through the gospel, we have forgiveness through Jesus, through his sacrifice, but the beast power says, if you want forgiveness, you need to come to us, and we have power in the mass to sacrifice Christ anew. If you want to be forgiven of your sins, you don't go directly to God in heaven, but you go to the priest, you confess your sins, and he'll tell you what you need to do. So the position of Jesus is trying to be usurped by this power spoken of as the beast. Are you all with me? So the dragon, Satan, tries to usurp the position of God the Father. The beast tries to usurp the position of Christ the Son. The false prophet tries to usurp the position of the Holy Spirit. Now in this case, the false prophet, and we'll get to this a little bit more when we study further in Revelation 14 and 18, but the false prophet represents those Protestant churches that have turned away from the truths of God's Word and are relying on some kind of manifestation or experience. I'm going to be very, I'll be very specific in just a minute and tell you what, what that is. But the false prophet represents those Protestant churches that have turned away from the truths of God's Word. So here are a few verses. Revelation 16, verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. Incidentally, how does a frog catch its prey? With his tongue. So there's a lot of deceit and lies. Coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Verse 14. For they are the spirits of devils performing signs. So how is this coalition power, these three powers, going to get the whole world to receive the mark of the beast. They're going to do it through signs and wonders, through miracles. Friends, the time is coming when you're not going to be able to trust what you see or what you hear, but you need to trust the Word of God. Put your faith in God's Word. You can't believe what you always see and hear, especially as we near the end. It says, These are the spirits of demons performing signs which go to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to gather them to battle of the great day of God Almighty. Now, Revelation chapter thirteen, thirteen, he's talking about the second beast in Revelation 13. Remember, there are two beasts of Revelation 13. The first beast comes up from the sea. That represents the papal power. There is a second beast in Revelation 13 that comes up from the earth, and he has two horns like a lamb, but he ends up speaking like the dragon. That represents the United States in Bible prophecy. Now, notice the role that the United States plays in this threefold union at the end of time. It says in verse 13, he, that would be the second beast of the United States, performs great signs so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men." Now, we're not talking about a nuclear bomb here, but remember, the Bible is symbolic. Revelation has symbols. What does it mean in the Bible when it talks about fire coming down from heaven? Fire coming down from heaven can represent two things in the Bible. On the one hand, it can represent God's approval. Remember when Elijah was on Mount Carmel and he prayed and fire came down and consumed the sacrifice? But at the same time, fire coming down from heaven can also represent judgment. For example, Sodom and Gomorrah. When the disciples were gathered in the upper room and they were earnestly praying and asking for the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came in tongues of fire. So there is going to be a movement. There's a movement that's going to be taking place in the United States, and eventually certain legislation will be passed, but it is a movement based upon a counterfeit moving of the Holy Spirit. A counterfeit moving of the Holy Spirit where there are signs and wonders manifest. That's what the Bible is describing. Okay, the Bible foretells of a counterfeit revival that will take place in the churches just before Jesus comes. This counterfeit revival will be accompanied by signs and wonders and will be so compelling that it will deceive, if possible, even the very elect. Now, Jesus said this. Jesus said, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the very elect. See, Jesus says, I have told you beforehand. So we know this is coming. We need not be deceived. Jesus said it's coming. Be on your guard. Be prepared. Well, what is this counterfeit manifestation of the Holy Spirit? The term charismatic movement expresses the entrance of miracles, prophecy, and baptism of the Spirit into mainline denominations. The charismatic movement shares many of the same doctrines as the Pentecostals, The difference is that the charismatic movement is embodied within historic denominations and is not a separate church. It is also adapted to the culture and the theology of the particular denomination in which it functions. So there is a movement that is jumping from church to church, even amongst Protestant churches and even Catholic churches that have some some common foundations the charismatic movement. Now, the charismatic movement is growing at a rate of about 10 million per year, and is estimated to be around 800 million by the end of 2021 worldwide. A 2008 report by the Bonner Group states that in America, the majority of born-again Christians are charismatic. So it's a big, growing movement. The charismatic revivals of today is very different from the great Protestant revivals of the past. Instead of being based upon the plain utterances of the Bible, much is done to appeal to the senses and to excite emotions. A strong emphasis is placed upon a contemporary style of music, and much is done to encourage people to enter into what's referred to as a worship experience. Are you with me today? You understand what I'm talking about? Just just watch religious programming on a Sunday morning on your TV and you'll see what I'm talking about. A key belief in the charismatic movement is the doctrine of what's called guidance of the Holy Spirit, which is believed to be as authoritative, and in some cases even more authoritative than the Bible. I was doing a Bible study one time with a lady, and... She just loved studying the Bible. And we were looking at a number of important truths and prophecies. And in our study, we came across the Sabbath truth. She'd never seen it before. And we studied it from Scripture. And she said at the end of the study, she said, Pastor, this makes sense. I've never seen this before. She was so excited. She said, I can't wait to see, tell my pastor about these things that I've learned. I said, well, that's okay. But, uh, you know, he's going to say this and this and this. So here's the verses. You know, because they going to bring up this verse. Here's the verse. Here's the answer to that. Oh, okay, okay. She was all excited. Well, I called her up for a Bible study the next week and she said, Oh, Pastor, I don't want to study with you anymore. I said, Why? What happened? She said, Well, I, I spoke to my pastor and I said, did, did he give you the verses? She said, No, he didn't even give me the verses. I said, What did he say? She said, He told me that I don't have to keep. God's commandments, because after all, we've got the Holy Spirit. And if we were missing something, the Holy Spirit would tell us to do it. I said, well, how do you know that you have the Holy Spirit? She says, well, because when I go to church on Sunday and the music gets going, she says, there is a cloud that fills our sanctuary. She says, we've got the Holy Spirit. Do you understand how dangerous Relying upon signs and wonders will be in the last days. If we choosing our feelings above the word of God or what we see or what we hear, we're walking on dangerous ground. Are you with me? So the charismatic movement is this growing movement, jumping from denomination to denomination. It's based upon an experience. It's based upon a feeling. And the Bible takes second place. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20 says, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this, it's because there is how much? There is no light in there. The expression third wave is used to describe what charismatics believe to be the three historic periods of activity of the Holy Spirit over the past 100 years. The first wave occurred back in 1906 with the rise of the Pentecostal movement. The second wave occurred during the 1960s as the charismatic movement spread in Protestant denominations and the Roman Catholic Church. The third wave occurred during the mid-1980s and is identified as a resurgence of church planting and the mega-church movement. Of course, we see that today. Now, each wave has a slightly different theology with regards to the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. During the first wave, it was preached that the gift of the Holy Spirit had to be accompanied by speaking in tongues in order to be genuine. During the second wave, it was preached that the gift of the Holy Spirit is not always expressed in speaking in tongues, although it might be. But in the third wave, it tended to identify the gift of the Spirit with conversion and that tongues may not be emphasized at all and usually is not featured in public meetings. So there's been a shift in the idea of the so-called manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, this is not something new. And this by no means has caught God by surprise. He's warned us in his word that these things are coming. And if you trace the history of this, it's rather interesting. Martin Luther, the great reformer, notice the dates of his life was 1483 to 1546. We'll come back to those dates in a minute. But look, Martin Luther challenged the authority of tradition by preaching that the Bible, the Bible is the final authority for faith and practice and the test of all doctrine. Sola Scriptura was the cry of the Protestant Reformation. The great Protestant Reformation focused attention on the Bible as being the final authority and not the traditions of the church. Now, at the same time, there was another individual, Ignatius of Loyola, Notice the dates of his life, 1491 to 1556. He was a contemporary of Martin Luther. Ignatius of Loyola, founder of the Jesuits, became one of the most important leaders of the Catholic Counter-Reformation. Ignatius wrote the Jesuit Constitution and stressed absolute obedience to the Pope. His appeal was to submit the conscience to the authority of the church and to spiritual encounters, he called it, achieved by Eastern-style meditation. So there's two clashes of ultimate authority. Martin Luther says the Bible needs to have the final say, whereas Ignatius says, no, it's church tradition that has the final say, or it is an experience that I might have that determines what is truth or what is error. Do you see the difference? Ellen White tells us in Prophets and Kings... Christians should be preparing for what soon will break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. And this preparation they should make by diligently studying the Word of God and striving to conform their lives to its precepts. The tremendous issues of eternity demand us from us something besides, notice the next part, an imaginary religion. A religion of words or forms, where truth is kept in the outer court. So what she's telling us is that there is going to be something coming upon the earth that is going to be so persuasive that it's going to deceive, if possible, even the very elect. She says, be ready, be warned. What do we need? She says, we need something more than an imaginary religion. We need a personal, vibrant relationship with Jesus. We need to be connected to Christ. We need to be abiding In Christ. You see, true revival is based upon faith in the promises of the Bible and willing obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The counterfeit revival is based upon an emotional experience in which the Bible takes second place to the so-called spiritual encounter. Instead of the scriptures being the test of all doctrine and experience, the spirit becomes the test of what is right and what is wrong. Now, notice this verse here. It's so important. John chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus says, however, when he, the spirit of truth is come, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. Jesus said, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So the Holy Spirit does not speak on his own authority. In other words, the Holy Spirit doesn't say, well, I tell you to do this. The Holy Spirit says, the Bible tells you to do this. So the Holy Spirit will always place authority upon the Word of God. It will never place authority upon himself. So any so-called spirit or Holy Spirit that takes the ascendancy to the Word of God is not the Holy Spirit. It's a counterfeit spirit. Are you with me? You understand. Verse 14 Jesus said, He will glorify me, Christ, for He will take what is mine and He will declare it to you. The first fall of Babylon was that of the Roman Church when she rejected the teachings of the Reformation and placed tradition above the Bible. Jesus said of this, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The second fall of Babylon came when many Protestant churches rejected the first angel's message preached by the early Adventist believers in the 1840s. And since then, we've seen a steady decline, a continual shift away from Bible truth, more and more to the traditions of the mother church. So the mother is Rome, the daughters are those Protestant churches that are holding to the doctrines and the teachings of the mother church. However, in closing, let me remind you, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. God has got faithful men and women in every church. Men and women who are earnestly seeking truth, who are praying to so Lord, please reveal to me where I need to be. Show me truth. And God has given us a message, a work to proclaim a message that will allow them to come out of religious confusion and make their stand upon Bible truth. Although the influence of Babylon over political and religious powers is almost universal, its downfall is promised. And we find that in Revelation chapter 16. And I saw an angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those that dwell upon the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him that made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. And another angel said, Babylon, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. May God give us the courage and the strength to stand firmly upon his word. Amen? Amen. And do what we can to share this end-time warning message with the world. Let's pray. Dear Father, we've looked at a very important message tonight. Not a popular message, especially in the Christian world today. But Father, this is your message this is the message you have given us to take to the world. Father, we recognize and we know that there are many, many of your children still scattered amongst Babylon and even in no church at all. And Lord, they are looking for truth and they, they earnestly seeking for guidance. And Father, you have given us your word. You have revealed to us the truth. Oh, Father, I pray that you would, you would strengthen us in our own lives to live the truths of the word and make them known to others. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.